This and every episode of Project 7 is proudly presented by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. With their exclusive Fibrex material, all of their windows are custom-made, high-performance, energy-efficient, and installed by certified installers. Log on today to request your free in-home estimate and take advantage of their buy one, get one 40% off sale with no money down, no interest, and no payments for 12 months with approved credit. Visit rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. That's rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. Project 7 contains explicit language, descriptions of violence, and discussion of suicide. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Welcome to Project 7. I'm Justin Franz. And I'm Andy Viano, and this is Episode 4, The Hit List. David, go, go ahead and call the joke. David, are, are, go ahead and disbelieve it. You're about to start something that you have no idea what you're doing. It was the police department, local law enforcement, and local politicians, and kill them all. They were hoping to basically incite the federal government and kicking off this civil war. People were going to die or get hurt, and that's where the whole shit hits the fan. Yeah, he's definitely looking for a place to confront us here. I cannot imagine how terrifying it would be. I received a call and I said, hey... David Berger just popped some shots off at them as a little county deputy, and it's like, okay, I'm on my way. And I really expected him to be laying on the ground, but as we cleared it, he was gone. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It's that mystery that hasn't been solved. It's the Amelia Earhart of our day in Montana, right? Where is David Berger? If he is alive and he's staying out of trouble, I just hope he does that. Should have done that in the first place. Wouldn't be here doing this story, but I don't really care what people think about me, and I don't care what they write in the paper. Friend, you do anything you gotta do, okay? Hey, you do. Any, you, you remember that this, whatever happens after this moment, will never go away unless it's positive. In the summer of 2001, David Burgert's distrust of the government and of authority in general was growing. In August, David joined other like-minded individuals in Klamath Falls, Oregon, which had become a major battleground in a fight between farmers who needed water for their crops and federal regulators trying to protect a fish that was on the endangered species list. As the summer wore on, law enforcement grew fearful that violence would break out in southern Oregon. It was the latest incident where federal agents were concerned about far-right extremists whose distrust of the government boiled over throughout the 1990s during explosive incidents in places like Ruby Ridge, Idaho, Waco, Texas, and Oklahoma City. Was Klamath Falls next? In August of 2001, when David was visiting Oregon and busy building his own militia back home in Kalispell, right-wing extremism was one of the FBI's top priorities. But that all changed a few weeks later. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane oh, one just hit. has crashed. Something else just hit. A very large plane just oh. flew directly over my building, and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I yes. On September 11, 2001, Americans across the country were glued to their televisions, trying to make sense of what they were seeing. 
Among the viewers that day were David Bergert, Jason Larson, and other members of the militia group Project 7. September 11th was crazy, right? So all of the group members got called together. We watched the towers fall together. Like, it was a big deal. Like, oh, is this going to, is our country being invaded? Like, it's a big deal, right? It was a big deal to everybody. But as a group that says they're here to defend our country, you know, it's a little bit different. It's a, you know what I mean? <laughs> We're all in the in the house loading magazines together, you know, t- and talking about, okay, here's what our plans are. Here's our radio call signs. Here's what we're going to do. We'll help the National Guard if they need help. Whatever, whoever needs help, we're going to help them, right? And then we just monitored on TV. Everybody was on high alert, so you had to have your radio on you at all times, and you had to have your cell phone on you at all times so that if you were called, you were called. Later that day, David called into a radio talk show hosted by controversial Kalispell provocateur John Stokes, using his airtime to remind other Project 7 members of the preparations they had been making for a day just like this one. I need to let you know, as well as the listeners know, that um, most of us who know my voice have pulled our kids out of school and have them at home now due to some lockdown situations in the bigger towns. Um, they, they need to remember, remain calm, because this is probably not a one-day isolated incident. I don't think so. And um, another thing is that those active members that know what I'm talking about, in the event that we lose calm, which I mean radios or our cell phones, they need to rally. They need to rally to the points they've been assigned and secure the areas that they have been assigned to secure. Nobody. Nobody surrender your weapons to nobody. I don't care what color the uniform is, do not surrender your weapons. We are not at martial law here in Montana. This, this right here is for the people that know what I'm talking about, I know, I that know have that. left their jobs and are doing what they're supposed to do because our police department does not have the capability to handle this. Right. Here's Travis McAdam of the Montana Human Rights Network. In some ways, it made sense for him to call and do that on 9-11 just because I do think... You know, on that day, as as everything was happening and people were trying to piece together what it meant, I do think that Bergert probably did think, wow, the, this this could be it, you know, regardless of who committed the attacks. And I mean, there are definitely people in the militia movement that still think it was an inside job that the, you know, the feds did it so they could create the Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, so there's there's those conspiracy theories that remain. But I think at that time... Berger probably did think, like, this is it. Like, regardless of who did the attacks, like, this is going to be the opportunity for the federal government to say, we're going to declare martial law, we're, you know, and, and kick off this battle that they thought where they're going to declare martial law, they're going to come for our guns, they're going to try to send us to concentration camps, you know, all, all of those pieces. So, yeah, I think that that very easily could have been part of, part of what he was thinking on that day. For at least several months before September 11th, members of Project 7 had been stockpiling mountains of guns, ammunition, and other weaponry, burying strategic caches around Kalispell and the surrounding area, a familiar tactic used by militia groups to secure their arms. Undersheriff Chuck Curry would later get a peek at what Project 7 had been hiding. Had them kind of all over the valley at different people's houses... Some were buried in the woods, had a pretty impressive array of weaponry, ammunition, survival equipment. 
they'd even made uh, steel spikes to throw out of a car window if they were being pursued to deflate tires. It had quite a bit of stuff. FBI Special Agent Steve Liss. You know, they were just putting them in, in boxes, you know, army, army surplus boxes where they were waterproofed and put in plastic bags. And they were temporary, you know, once law enforcement was involved, these stashes were temporary. They, they weren't to be permanent in nature, but they were temporary in nature to conceal the weapons as well as protect them. So if they needed the weapons, they could get to them and, and use them. Jason Larson contended that Project 7 started as a group dedicated to service one protecting their community from enemies, both foreign and domestic. But by September 11th, some members of Project 7 were concocting a different, more sinister plan, driven by a mounting paranoia. And the one leading this faction of the group was David Burgert, whose own mind was swimming with conspiracy theories and anger over the way he had been treated by local law enforcement. And David was not alone in this faction of Project 7. Larry Chechem, the candidate for sheriff who you heard from as a guest on the John Stokes radio show in episode 3, had also joined this ramshackle militia. Project 7's inner workings are hard to pin down, and almost everyone who was once a member has either passed away or had no interest in talking to us about their experience. But many of the people we were able to talk to claimed Project 7 was a loose collective of like-minded individuals, not a disciplined, organized military-like unit, and not everyone in the group had the same understanding of what kind of plans were being made. Here, Missoula journalist Jamie Rogers describes a conversation he had with Larry Chetram. What he told me was that it started with David hiring a CPR instructor that they would meet every weekend for a month or something and you know learn some first aid skills. But as far as I know, I think Project 7 according to Larry, was very amorphous and was not a real, like, organization. I don't think Larry was stupid. And I don't think, I really don't think Larry thought they were going to take over the government. And I don't think that he thought they were going to assassinate judges and get the National Guard to come in. And I just, I don't believe it. FBI agent Steve Liss had a very different impression of Project 7. You know, they would do things like first aid training. They would do tactical training. They would do weapons training. It was kind of like you know, what you would expect a, a law enforcement SWAT team or a military, you know, to, to, to train, to understand navigation, understand first aid, understand how to use your weapon, understand defensive fighting positions. There were at least two members of Project 7 who seemed to be thinking about putting that training into action. Around the turn of the century, David began an affair with a woman named Tracy Brockway. She and her husband, Alan, had helped start Project 7, but Alan had moved to Israel around the same time the affair began. Tracy was working as a nighttime cleaner at the Whitefish Police Department, and used that job to gather intelligence for Project 7 about local law enforcement officers, including home addresses and the names of their children. The group used that information to write a list, one that included many of the people David had interactions with over the years, including Sheriff Jim DuPont and a local judge named Ted Limpus, while others were people who had been vilified on John Stokes' radio show, like Kalispell's mayor, Pam Carbonari, then Pam Kennedy. What exactly the list was for is a subject of some debate, 
But Project 7 militia member Jason Larson has little doubt the document was meant to be a hit list. And I'm sure you guys have read about the plans. that Then he read, wrote them down, which can't lie when you wrote them down and you put them in your, your filing cabinet, right? I mean, you can't. Why are you collecting information on what schools these kids go to, what they're allergic to, and you know, their day-to-day schedules. And um, I was not a part of that, but other people were in the part of, you know, following sheriff's wives, seeing what time their kids went to school. So there was serious planning. As far as we can tell, the list itself was real. Although it's important to note that in more than a year of reporting, we've never seen a copy of it. What we know for certain is that David and his associates had acquired sensitive personal information about local officials that David Bergert had a years-long grudge with many of those officials, and that he and Project 7 had an arsenal large enough to wage war. FBI Special Agent Steve Liss. They were compiling intelligence. We had 26 or 29 people where they were compiling intelligence on. So it's like, what do you need to have automatic weapons and explosives for? What do you need to be following cops and their families around and gathering intelligence on those people? I think common sense is going to tell you that's a concern. Under Sheriff Chuck Curry. We developed information that they actually had plans or at least had a list of people in local and state government that they wanted to assassinate. Who was on that list? Well, I was on the list. One of our district court judges was on the list. Sheriff DuPont was on the list. I actually can't remember everybody that was, but uh, fairly disturbing. Kalispell Police Chief Frank Garner. They were keeping track of some of us individually, where we lived, where the kids went to school, that kind of thing. That was the information we were given. And that it was because they were trying to decide exactly what to do with us. But but it was, uh, you know, but the general sense of it, it was that it was a threat to us individually. And so the when the information came to us that they were collecting that information, engaging in these activities, that's when it became, I think, a lot more real for us. Jason Larson says the plans were real and that he was to be one of the people who would have been cast to carry them out. I didn't really hear about the plan until around, I think, 2001. So around the September 11th, all that heightened deal and it started becoming a more prevalent conversation in weekly meetings rather than bi-weekly meetings. And I voiced pretty openly my opinion on that. And the fact of the matter is that they had in the plans me doing a lot of things bugged me, right? Like, well, why am I the guy that's going and doing this? Why am I the guy that's going to be on camera doing these things? Like, why, why am I being chosen to be the face so that's, you know, things that my parents instilled in me. You know, you always ask questions. You always, you know, kind of doubt, especially if somebody's going to use you for something. And I kind of feel like that's what the plan was to use the 17-year-old kid to do effed up things. And then I could kind of be the patsy for Dave and what do the hard things. things. Did it make sense to me to do things to back then in my way of thinking? So... Um, to people that were treasonous or otherwise violating the Constitution? Did it make sense to me to harm those people? 
or to possibly harm them in a battle, yes. Everybody knows there's collateral damage in, in war, right? And, um, yeah, so back then, yes, it did make sense. It just still makes sense to this day if you're going to have a civil war that there's going to be people on both sides of the law or both sides of the conflict that are going to die. Our original civil wars happened the same way. So that's in the context, that's the way I thought. So even back then and even to this day, it would be in the context of a civil war. That would be in a context of the whole country being involved in it, not in a one group making a decision to try to kick off the situation themselves because it's not appropriate. If you believe the intention of the list was to commit mass assassinations, then it's not a stretch to believe that David and Project 7 were prepared to go much further. According to multiple sources, including those close to David and within Project 7, the plan was to declare war on local law enforcement, draw out the National Guard, and eventually overthrow the federal government with the help of other militias from around the country. The end game would be to take over a movie station or a TV station and broadcast the signal to people and to get the National Guard involved and then take out the National Guard, which at the time with the group support that we have wouldn't have been a really difficult thing. Once that happened, there was other groups that were would have supported because they've, they had criteria like this is what you have to do. And then we'll step in and help you. That was the end game. That was the plan. Who knows where it would have went from there. Nobody knew where it was going to go from there. But that was that was the plan. As far-fetched as that all sounds, the idea of overthrowing the government or creating a new one isn't exactly new in the inland Northwest. Since the 1970s, some white supremacist groups have dreamed of creating a white ethnostate here, a region reserved for only white Christians. In recent years, another separatist movement has emerged with a proposal to create the State of Liberty, which would include parts of eastern Washington, Oregon, northern Idaho, and western Montana, and has been connected to the controversial Washington politician Matt Shea. Was this what David and Project 7 were thinking about when they were threatening to take on the National Guard? That's hard to know. But David would never get a chance to see any of his plans in action. Project 7 and all of the journalism that comes from the Flathead Beacons newsroom in downtown Kalispell is made possible in part because of contributions from members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. What is the Flathead Beacon Editors Club? The Editors Club was created in 2018 as a way for our readers to support the important work we do. Remember, each and every issue of the Flathead Beacon and everything at flatheadbeacon.com is free, but that doesn't mean it's free to produce. In fact, good quality journalism is expensive, but for as little as $5 a month, Beacon Editors Club members can help make our work possible. And while $5 doesn't sound like much, taken together, those contributions can do a lot like help us crisscross Western Montana for over 15 months to bring you this podcast. And being a member of the Editor's Club comes with some great perks, like bonus episodes of Project 7 and one of our popular Glacier National Park posters. Want to learn more? Head over to BeaconEditorsClub.com today and sign up.
In January 2002, David was scheduled to appear in court for his assault charge stemming from an incident a year earlier with Bob Sesnick. Sesnick was in Dave's AA group, and on January 5, 2001, a Montana Highway patrolman tried to pull him over because of the blue tent of some lights on his truck. Like David, Sesnick did not trust law enforcement, so instead of pulling over, he drove directly to Dave's house on Tumble Creek Road in Kalispell. When Sesnick arrived, he got out of the car and walked into David's home. When the patrolman tried to follow Sesnick, David blocked the door and allegedly punched a sheriff's deputy in the midst of a wild brawl. But David wasn't planning on showing up in a court run by the government he was growing more and more weary of every day. Just a few days before David was set to appear in court, he went fishing along the Flathead River in Kalispell and did not return. Burgert's wife, Yvonne, reported him missing and pleaded with local authorities to find her husband. Soon after, his truck, fishing pole, and tackle box were found along the river. The scene looked as if David had fallen in the river, but January weather in northwest Montana is hardly ideal for fishing, so to the members of Project 7, it looked as though law enforcement had finally followed through on their secret plan to eliminate David Burgert. So we get an anonymous call, me and his wife, get an anonymous call saying, hey, we heard that they found Dave's truck down at Presentine Bar. So I jump, jump in my car with his wife and we drive there. We're under the impression that the cops killed Dave, me and his wife, right? And that he's missing him and his wife. And I have no idea what has happened to Dave. We show up there and a sheriff pulls up right behind me. Like instantly as I pull in and then a sheriff pulls in. And so imagine what's running through my mind as a 17 year old kid thinking that somebody harmed Dave and then a cop pulls up behind me. I was getting pretty worked up, not trusting the cops and not trusting even the group because I was just like, what's going on here? Under Sheriff Chuck Curry said that looking at the actual evidence at the scene, it was clear that David had neither drowned nor been taken by someone meaning to do him harm. He was facing criminal charges. There were lots of things finally starting to catch up with him. And when he disappeared, he actually staged his own, tried to stage his own death. I mean, certainly we were skeptical from the start just because of who he was. And we, we certainly didn't stop looking for him and certainly didn't, didn't necessarily just say, oh, well, gosh, he's gone. We did uh, search the river and did continue looking for him because he's not the kind of guy that just fades off into nowhere and we aren't going to continue to have contact with. Curry's instinct was right. David was not dead. But that was news to Jason Larson and other members of Project 7, who had been left in the dark regarding a plan concocted by David and Tracy Brockway to go into hiding. We did the search for him after he had faked his death. We did the search for him. We all searched for Dave's body. They had river boats going up and down the river for the sheriff's department. So it was a legit thing. Like, everybody was looking for Dave. About a week later... They told me to meet out at Tracy's house. We're having a meeting at Tracy's house and we're having the meeting and the three people that knew about it knew about it. Now nobody else knew. So Dave walks out of the room and we're all like in tears and upset and different you know, emotional processes, right? Because 
we didn't know and then anger because we weren't clued in or we weren't trusted enough to be clued in. Not long after that meeting, Jason Larson and David Berger moved in together, camping on a wooden platform in the forest that David had built months earlier, possibly in anticipation of needing to get away for a while. The two men spent most of their days just trying to get through the brutal winter conditions. Day-to-day survival in the woods in the frigid cold like that, you wake up in the morning and you start a fire to melt water to drink, to just do the whole process over again until you go to sleep. Back and forth, you know, all, all day, all morning. We did some conversation, set up some booby traps, talked about our escape route, what, we, what our plan is, our radio frequency to get a hold of Tracy and the other guy that was going to come get us. There was, you know, like I said, that was a heightened state of alert, right? You know, it was just, it was straight up survive. You were surviving the whole time. For years, Jason had looked up to David as a father figure, but something was different in the woods that winter. Jason was still just a teenager, but even he could see that the funny, carefree, selfless person he described when they first met had disappeared into an angry, paranoid man who was constantly on edge. Jason and David were together for more than a month when their relationship came to a head during a trip out of the woods to Tracy Brockway's house. It began because he wanted to have sex with Tracy and he wanted me to go outside. And I was like, I'm not going outside. I'm not. I'm not. I just spent my ass. I just been on my freezing my ass off with you outside for a month and a half at that point. No. Hell no. They grabbed me to throw me outside, and I've been in martial arts my whole life, so it became a fight. We knocked the pipe off the stove, and then when he felt like he didn't have the upper hand, he uh, headbutted me, broke my nose, and then Tracy got in the middle of us and stopped the fight. I said, you guys, you just need to calm down. And you, at that point, start to make a two-and-a-half-mile hike back. Yep, grabbed my pistol and walked out. Did he follow you? I was told by another group member that he grabbed a rifle and he was going to shoot me, but Tracy and him talked. So as I was walking down the road, he pointed a gun at my back and I I don't, I never saw it. I have to kind of trust the guy, other guy's story. For the first time, Larson was starting to worry about David's mental state and he feared his friend was going to do something awful. For months, Project 7 was stockpiling weapons for what members believed would be an eventual conflict started by federal law enforcement officers for the next Klamath Falls, as David had said the previous summer. But after spending weeks in the woods with David, Larson started to see a man who was headed down a darker path, a path Larson did not want to take himself. As things progressed with Dave hiding and going into hiding and being out in the woods, he kind of started losing his touch on reality. I mean, being out in the woods and then being in a constant state of fear like that is not good for anybody. I mean, the stress and, you know, being in a heightened state of stress like that is not good for your body. Your body needs happiness and all that. Like I said from before that Dave was a happy, he was not a happy person anymore. It was all negative. It was all, you know, every light that passed by the front of the cabin there in Kyla. Oh, this is the cops coming to get me. It was constant state of alert. 
his mental state was deteriorating very rapidly. Obviously, he got in a fight with somebody that he loved and cared for to sleep with somebody else that he was friends and loved and cared for. And so neither one of their mental states was very good at that point. I think the only one that was holding it together mentally was me. And obviously that shows in the decision I made to go to the FBI. I left, I walked out to the highway, got a ride into town, and went straight to the sheriff's department, like straight to the sheriff's department, and told him I wanted the FBI involved because it just was getting too far out of hand and some some people were going to die or get hurt. Larson arrived at the Flathead County Sheriff's Office, and after he spoke on the phone with the FBI, he told sheriff's deputies where David was hiding. By this point, in February 2002, David has already missed his day in court and is now officially a fugitive from justice. As a handful of deputies went to arrest David, Larson spilled everything he knew about Project 7's hit list, the caches of weapons, and more. I told him about the whole plot that I knew of, and that I just told him everything. And, and you know, at 17, they, a lot of them thought I was just full of shit, right? That I was pumping them full of smoke or making the story more than it was. But, you know, I didn't inflate anything. I didn't inflate round counts of ammunition, people that were involved. I was 100% honest. I think he was kind of counting more on me just letting it blow over but the fact of the matter is things were heading in a direction that it wasn't gonna just go back to normal and after the fight I just didn't feel like I had the pull anymore that's why I went to the FBI I just didn't feel like I had the same pull that I did 24 hours before that so I don't know I guess if you were to put a cop in undercover you know and they're there and then all of a sudden they lose their pull they would do the same thing right they'd pull the cord and they'd call in for backup that's what I did I just didn't didn't have the didn't think it was going to work out in my favor let's put it that way with this new information about a hit list and caches of weapons buried around town local law enforcement began a frantic search for David one of the first places they looked was a camp David and Larson had shared in Olney, the same sparsely populated, heavily forest mountain town where a young snowmobiler had gone missing and died just months earlier. Dave Lieb was among the first deputies to arrive at the campsite. We rode in on snowmobiles close to where the trail had taken off and then we hiked in from there to get eyes on the camp and couldn't see anybody there so we went ahead and went on into the camp and checked it out. A couple of tents, a uh, lot of stuff, just cleared the camp to make sure it was safe. We hiked down the tra trail, actually we're looking for uh, trip wires or uh, booby traps. And Empty-handed, Lieb returned to his vehicle and headed home to Kalispell. It was late at night and a vicious winter storm had begun to cover the landscape in snow and ice. As he drove down the highway, though, a call came out on the radio. 
David Burgert had been found. Under Sheriff Chuck Curry describes what happened next. He had been into residence out west of Kalispell, uh, was in a car with his girlfriend, and uh, one of our deputies responded out there, saw the car, and attempted to stop it. A chase ensued, and they wound up going in a ditch. It was winter. There was a lot of snow. I certainly remember that. And both uh, bailed out of the car and fled into the woods. Dave was armed, uh, had a long gun with him, and his girlfriend was uh, caught by the deputy a short distance away. She, uh, she was taken into custody fairly quickly, but uh, he was uh, not quite so easy. Next time on Project 7. He did raise his rifle at us. We're yelling for him to put the gun down. Um, He's yelling back at us to kill him. How close we came to exchanging shots at that point in time, I'm amazed that we didn't. I'm amazed that somebody didn't didn't fire around. And I'm going to tell you, I beat myself up for a very long time because I love Dave like a dad or like a brother. His life was relatively good. He was medicated. He had structure. And we brought him in and kind of confronted him with, hey, you know, we kind of heard there's some grumblings that he might be harboring some of those things. The sucker came to the door, and I was like, David, you know, I didn't even know you were in town. Once we figured out who this was, we had had numerous calls with David Berger. There's nothing in me that says, This man was a bad man, but there are some people that just attract some kind of turmoil. Project 7 is a production of the Flathead Beacon in Kalispell, Montana. The show is written, produced, and edited by Justin Franz and me, Andy Viana. The editor-in-chief of the Flathead Beacon is Kellen Brown, and our managing editor is Myers Reese. Music in this episode is composed by Jeremy Reinbolt and performed by Nick Spear, Rebecca Spear, Halliday Quist, Jesse Auman, and Jeremy Reinbolt. Marco Forcone is the audio engineer for the Project 7 theme. Our ad music is Blippy Trance by Kevin McLeod and used via Creative Commons License 4.0. The Project 7 logo was designed by Dwayne Harris, and our website was built by Patrick Sappington and Pierce Ware. Special thanks to Flathead Valley Community College, the Montana Human Rights Network, the University of Montana School of Journalism, JusticeProductions.net, and the entire staff of the Flathead Beacon. And a reminder that this and every episode of Project 7 is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. To learn more, visit rbamontana.com. That's rbamontana.com. Project 7 is made possible by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Member contributions help pay for all of the Beacon's reporting and help secure our future as the Flathead Valley's most trusted source of local, independent journalism. Members also get access to great perks, including weekly bonus episodes of this podcast. Check out our website at project7pod.com to see documents, videos, and more related to this and every episode. 
and find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Project7Pod. If you know the whereabouts of David Berger or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, send an email to project7 at flatheadbeacon.com. Thanks for listening.